I have cave dive beneath golf courses, a bowling alley, homes. Um, my favorite is underneath the salad bar of a Sunny's barbecue restaurant. Well, a surface tracking team was like walking in between the tables in a restaurant yelling cave survey coming through and planting a orange flag in a salad bar potato salad. That is Jill Heinerth, the world's leading underwater cave diver. Our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast brought to you by One Ocean Expeditions. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We left Simpson about June 10th with a fur brigade consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, it means, it means that in the oral history is very strong. Every little over every inch of the country that could be, we were hoping that he would fire at us. Welcome to Explore. I'm your host, David McGuffin. This is the podcast where we talk to the world's greatest living explorers about how Canada, its landscape, people, and history have shaped their lives, adventures, and understanding of the world around us. As you heard in that introductory clip, our guest Jill Heinerth has scuba dived in some pretty incredible places, whether in freshwater aquifers beneath our cities or down flooded mine shafts or into submerged volcanoes. The Southern Ontario native has set a number of diving records, including, as we'll hear, the longest dive into an Antarctic iceberg, as well as records for the deepest and longest underwater cave dives. She's also an accomplished photographer, educator, author, and an award-winning filmmaker. And with that resume and her decades of experience, in 2016, she became the first ever Royal Canadian Geographical Society Explorer-in-Residence. Our conversation took place here in the Sir Christopher and Dace Reading Room at the RCGS headquarters in Ottawa. And now, Jill Heinerth. We were emailing back and forth before this, and you sent me a delightful email in which you said uh, sea lion had bit through my dry suit <laughs> yes. which sounds like a title of a book like, yeah. I'll, I'll give that one to you <laughs> yeah yeah that's just a, one moment in the service of my career one dry suit in the service of my career <laughs> so, so where were the yeah. sea lions and what were you doing oh i was out in british columbia filming uh sea lions on a place called uh, hornby island uh, Norris rocks and the sea lions uh, gather there and they're awaiting the herring run. So in another week or two, all the herring will spawn in that region. And they'll turn all of the water around there white with milt and, and the sea lions will go crazy because <laughs> there's tons for them to eat. It's their favorite thing. But in the meantime, they're a little bit bored and very interested in playmates. So as we pull our boat up close to Norris rocks, um, hundred, even 200 meters away from where the sea lions are, some of them will peel off the rocks and come hurriedly swimming towards the boat, anxious to play. And they'll surface and grunt and bark and try and get our attention. And when we jump in the water, they just go crazy, swimming around us, nibbling at our suits, spitting our bubbles back in our faces. And 
Wow. They're amazing. So, yeah. So the biting isn't a fearful or dangerous thing. So no, it's, it's more like childlike teething. You know, they like the feel of squishy neoprene on your hood. Um, they're playful, but they're, they're little devils too. Like they steal fins. They try and pull a glove off. So they really are looking for things to play with. They'll pick up rocks and they'll bounce rocks off their nose and pass it to another sea lion or they'll pass it towards you, expecting you to throw it back at them again. And wow. Yeah, it's, just, wow. it's remarkable. It's totally on their terms too, yeah. but it's yeah. remarkable. So I've just listened to you give a talk and you're talking about swimming with polar bears, which is, sounds yes. like the different end of the swimming with animals spectrum. Yeah, they are not playful. <laughs> Where was this? Uh, so up in the Fox Basin, so north of Hudson Bay in the Arctic, I was working on a documentary film for The Nature of Things that you'll see later, probably in the fall. And we were swimming with polar bears to attempt to get some footage of them swimming through the water because it's unusual. We see a lot more swimming polar bears these days than we do in their natural habitat, which is on the ice, on right. the sea ice hunting. They're really good swimmers, though. Right? They're amazing swimmers. I think they're amazing at everything they do. I mean, I've seen them transition from swimming in the water to just like crawling up and over an ice floe, back in the water, over to the shoreline, straight up a cliff to a bird's nest to steal eggs. They are great at motivating themselves anywhere. What are you worrying about when you're swimming with the polar bear? With the polar bears? I'm worried about being eaten. (laughs) The polar bear can swim for 10 days. So he can jump in the water and swim in a uniform direction towards a particular island for 10 days without stopping to feed or rest, 10 kilometers an hour, and he can dive. Uh, So the navigational abilities, the, you know, motivation that they can make through the water um, and, and take their babies with them <laughs> it's incredible wow that, yeah that is 10 days mm-hmm. 10 days in the water like wrap your head around that That's... yeah when we were planning this podcast we have a whole list of people we wanted to talk to and i have to say my immediate reaction when we were talking about you is what you do terrifies me probably more than anybody <laughs> else and having now researched more of what you do i think there's good reason right i mean so yeah. what, what you do is it, there's there's the arctic dives and there's other yeah. dives but you do a lot of cave diving which yes. is genuinely yeah. dangerous oh yeah cave diving is inherently dangerous it has all kinds of risks from failure of your life support equipment while you're in a place that you can't surface to the loss of visibility. We use a tactile guideline that we run through the caves so that if we lose all the visibility, we can just hold on to that piece of string and follow it all the way to the exit. But if that becomes broken, you can get lost. So yeah, there's a lot that can go wrong in an underwater cave. And some people call it the most dangerous sport. Right. I mean, you've had colleagues, you've had mentors who've lost doing this, right? I mean, how do you manage that? Yeah, fear and that it, you awareness know, of that. I've 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 lost over a hundred friends to wow. diving and cave diving accidents in the years. So I've written a lot of eulogies, and it's it's incredibly sobering. And I I guess I try and look at each accident and say, well, how could I have done something different or what could have prevented this accident. And I think that's the best way that I can sort of honor their memories is to try and educate others about things that we can do to prevent accidents. 
I'm actually risk averse. It might be hard to believe that. I'm having, I am having <laughs> trouble believing that. Uh, but I have to pre-visualize everything that could go wrong before I jump into any dive. I have to pre-visualize everything that could happen and then I have to rehearse through each of those scenarios. Do I have enough equipment? Do I have the skills? Have I used the right safety protocols to prevent this from happening? So that when I jump in the water, I can do so with a free mind that's not, you know, completely mm. in, in wrapped up in terror. <laughs> yeah, because if I didn't have that pre-visualizing exercise before the dive, I would be, you know, quaking in my boots with some of the things that I have to take on. So visualizing that, like, how, mm-hmm. is that over a period of weeks, months? Like- uh, well, yeah, I mean, the preparation for some dives is years right. in terms of training, mm-hmm. in terms of building equipment and safety protocols. But even right before I jump in the water, I sit there and close my eyes and walk through those very immediate risks that are before me. What can happen to my buddy? What can happen to me? What can happen to my gear? Um, What special environmental issues am I facing today? And I have to walk through the solutions before I jump in. I mean, you must have had a moment where you thought, oh, I'm in deep trouble now and I may not Mm -hmm. get out of this Mm -hmm. that you can remember. Yeah, I've had a few. Uh, I've been inside an iceberg in Antarctica when the current was so strong that we were having difficulty getting out from that cave environment. So you're in a cave well below the iceberg. Yeah, I'm in a cave literally encased in ice and the current is so strong I can't swim against it. And my one-hour dive turns into a three-hour dive. And how do you get out? Uh, Well, step by step and, and... That's generally how I tell people to look at big problems in life or how to look at survival. It can be all too great to figure out how you're going to solve the big, big problem, but you know what the next best step is. So if you're making one inch of progress at a time, it's progress, and you have to focus on the one inch of progress at a time rather than I might not make it. Because if you let those emotions hijack your brain, uh, you'll lose it, and you can't lose it when... Every breath, you know, is counted in terms of your life support. You know, you only have so much gas in your tanks. And so time is important and staying calm and keeping control over your breathing and making those small steps. So you Mm -hmm. got out, obviously. Yeah. Well, interestingly, I got out by copying fish. (laughs) So first of all, I got to a point where I could get contact with the actual seafloor and dive my hand into the substrate to pull myself forward. But I was still 130 feet deep on the seafloor when I got to a place that there was a way that I could go up towards the surface. But I had to go up towards the surface in a series of controlled steps that we call decompression to allow my body to readjust to the lower pressures as I moved up. And I had noticed that these little fish about the size of my thumb, had burrowed holes inside this cliff of ice and that that's where they lived when the current was strong. They would hide in these little holes. So I thought, aha, those are like (laughs) handholds. And I was diving my finger into their homes, evicting the fish and using those little finger holds as a way to pull myself up this sheer wall of ice when the current was pulling me back downward. Wow. And yeah, that, that and it worked. Little fish. Yeah, it worked. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> um, I want to talk more about the many different dives you've done because mm-hmm. so many of them are really just fascinating. But I want to start where you started. So where is home? Where, where were you born? 
I grew up in Mississauga, and it actually wasn't even Mississauga, Ontario back then. It was a little town called Cooksville. Right, which, which was, was a separate town probably yeah, back then. It yeah. Was, yeah, the town of Cooksville, uh, which was all apple orchards and farms. And for those that are familiar with Mississauga today, I mean, and it's, it's an extension of Toronto, and Mississauga City Hall Square One is a big, you know, towering skyscrapers. When I was in high school, kids still went home to the farm where Square One is located now. Wow. So, yeah, I'm 54. <laughs> so lots changed. A lot has changed. A lot yeah. has changed. Um, so it was yeah. almost a country lifestyle then in some ways? Sort or, of. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, the growing suburbia, really, at that time. And the apple orchards were being bulldozed for, you know, bedroom communities for people that worked back in Toronto and... And uh, yeah, so it was a, an evolving city and mm-hmm. growing as I was a kid, but I still had a huge connection with the outdoors. So weekends were spent hiking on the Bruce Trail or paddling in our family canoe in Algonquin or other places. I really grew up with a love of the outdoors. Right, and that came from your parents, presumably. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. What, what were they doing? What was their... My father's an engineer, oh. and my mom, for a brief period of time, was a was a school teacher, but then decided to stay home to bring up three kids. Mm-hmm. And that was a time when you could make that happen on one, one income. Right. So she was that steadfast right. uh, person that was always home when I got back from school, and... I have so many wonderful memories of the things that we did together as as a child before dad came home from work. Right. You know? So, I mean, both of those, I guess you mm-hmm. could say that into you. Because, I mean, engineers yeah. are, you think, focused and goal-oriented, yeah. which is certainly what you are. And you do a lot of time with kids, too. Don't yeah. You? And my mother is one of the most remarkable, well, she is the most remarkable woman I've ever known in my life. And she instilled in me a love of learning and a love of language. And she was an English teacher and full of grace and gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. So did scuba come into your life as a child? Well, I wanted to dive as long as I can remember. I remember watching Jacques Cousteau on TV and Uh. thinking, ah, I want to do that. But my parents didn't have the understanding or landscape of diving in their own experiences. So they supported me in my love of the water world, but I don't think they would have had a clue what one needed to do or why one would even want to go diving. (laughs) But as a child, I took swimming lessons and synchronized swimming and springboard diving, and I played water polo. And being in the water was... Important to me. Yeah, yeah, clearly yeah. something in the genes there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then just uh, so you graduate high school in Cooksville, and then yeah. where, where where are you going from there? I went to York University to do a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Visual Communications Design. Okay, that's surprising. Yep, most people think it's pretty. <laughs> pretty surprising path for an explorer, <laughs> but I look at that now as this the perfect path for an explorer. There were many, many things that I wanted to do. I Literally, as I was looking at schools, it was like, do I want to be an engineer? Do I want to be a scientist? Do I want to be an environmental scientist? My grandfather and my grandmother on my father's side were professional artists. So no way. I, yeah, no. very clearly had a gene pool <laughs> that led me in that direction. That's fantastic. Were they painters? or Both were painters, but my grandfather had an illustrating company, the equivalent of a modern ad agency. Mm-hmm. 
in Toronto. Right. Yeah, right. but he would hand illustrate all of his work, and he also kept a remarkable diary during World War One, a wow. visual diary, right. a sketchbook huh. that's now at the Canadian War Museum. Yeah. Yeah. I think the Canadian painter Tom Thompson, that's what he did. Yeah. yeah I think, and then more on your line, I think Bill Mason started out doing that, the, yeah. the great Canadian canoeist too, Yeah, an artist and then... You know, I think my artist sensibility and my, my interest in science, I just kind of wanted to do everything. I wanted to learn about the world. And that's why today my career is a hybrid of being an underwater videographer, photographer, being a writer. You know, when I write a documentary film, I have to research deeply into some new area that I might know nothing about. And I have to figure out how to communicate that to the layperson. So I get to dabble in everybody's science <laughs> and everybody's public policy issues. And I love that. Yeah. I just love learning. Yeah. yeah, that's the beauty. I'm a journalist and that's the beauty of that too. Mm -hmm. It's like there's always something new you can put your finger into. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah, no, I hear that. So what university are we at here? We're York University. York University in yeah. Toronto. Okay. Yeah, a really small program at the time. Uh, I remember, you know, starting first year and... Um, there were 150 kids in the fine arts department. And by the time I graduated, I think 12 of us finished the fourth year program. So it was, it was extremely competitive, um, but uh, fascinating, great program. So a woman who loves water and has a fine arts degree, where does that lead next? <laughs> well, I had my own advertising business down in Oakville, mm -hmm. which is west of Toronto. And... Um, and so again, you know, when you work in advertising, you learn about a lot of different things. And I loved the creative aspects of my career. But on nights and weekends, I was, I was teaching scuba diving because yeah. that was my hobby, my passion. And one day I was literally sitting inside the studio going, oh, I'm in the wrong place. I'm doing what I love, but I'm in the wrong place. I need to be outdoors. And how can I do that? And the only way I could think at the time was to just do a complete break, sell everything, leave my life in Toronto, leave my business. And um, I moved to the Cayman Islands to work full-time as a diver and improve my skills in underwater photography and try to figure out how to break into journalism from underwater and branch out further from there. Wow, so the Caymans, you're a dive instructor, is that? So, yeah, I was teaching diving and I was doing the marketing for this diving resort that I was living at right. and I was taking pictures and starting to write stories for magazines and that's when I started getting involved in cave diving, okay. which really, really struck a nerve in terms of that desire to explore. Right. And um, then from that move forward, I think every opportunity I had was brought to me through volunteering. So I volunteered for expeditions. I worked hard. I went to the expedition leader and said, how do I get to do what you do? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So that came in cave dive. I actually mm -hmm. I remember, re I've read an account of your description of that and you yeah. followed a group of cows to a water hole basically yeah with your scuba gear and then dropped yourself in mm -hmm. so cayman um grand cayman is a limestone landscape which we call karst it's much like a sponge made of rock and water has carved all the you know holes within the rock and water is stored within the rock beneath the surface of the earth so in cayman i started poking holes so uh, you know poking myself into holes in this landscape, looking for places that might potentially lead to underwater caves. And that's when a local bartender gave me a lead. 
she said, ah, we find the turtle and we put the turtle in the hole and it came out in the sea. <laughs> and I've heard that kind of a story yeah. many, many times on many islands before. But it's always worth pursuing, you know, is there any truth to this? Right. So she said, follow the cows, follow the cows, see where they drink inland and that's where you'll find the sweet water, that fresh water mm. that they're drinking. And I did for weeks and weeks. I followed cows in the bush <laughs> until I found this little watering hole, muddy, horrible place where the cows not only drank but also pooped. <laughs> and eventually, you know, got the guts up to slip into this muddy hole and re-dive beneath the surface. What was that moment like? It was quite remarkable because at first I'm literally in this warm, fetid hole that smells like cow dung. And uh, I thought, leap of faith. I took a deep breath of fresh air and dove headfirst down and I struck cold water. So suddenly I felt this chill over myself and tried to let my eyes adjust. And I was beyond this level of this murky brown water. And suddenly I was in colder, fresh, gin clear water. Mm. And I thought, oh, this water's coming from in the earth. And this is a cave. So that was my first cave discovery. Wow, yeah. So then I hiked back there with scuba gear yeah. to uh, check it out. So And then cave diving became, as you were saying, mm. you've started volunteering for every sort of mission you could get on. And what is it about? I mean, it's dangerous, clearly. And I'm guessing there's a bit of a thrill to that as well. But what mm. else is going on in this? For me, you know, when I was a kid, people said the age of exploration was over. Oh, we've conquered the moon. We're done now. <laughs> right, right. You know, Tenzing Norgay and Sir Edmund Hillary had been to the top of Everest. And then um, Picard and Walsh had been to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. And now the Apollo astronauts had walked on the surface of the moon. What was there left to do? And as this kid that wanted to explore and go to a place that no man had ever been before. For me, inner earth was left. So, you know, we know more about space than we do about our oceans. Well, we know even less about underwater cave environments and what lies within the earth. And that gave me the opportunity and yeah, the thrill to go inside the planet, but also an opportunity to do all these different kinds of sciences. I mean, I work with biologists looking at the life that lives within these caves with um, paleoclimatologists interested in learning about global climate change with evidence they find in the geology in these underwater caves. I work with archaeologists looking at the remains of previous you know, civilizations, these cultural remains that are left in the doorways of caves. So it was an opportunity to not just explore, but to explore a lot of different interdisciplinary sciences and participate in those. Yeah. I've watched a lot of your videos mm -hmm. and I encourage everyone to get on Google and start Googling Jill Heiner because they're amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but I mean, I've seen you go through these tunnels into these underwater mm -hmm. caves that are barely bigger than you and your equipment. And I'm just like, Jill, back up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can't let my mom watch too many of those. It's a little bit tough. <laughs> Some of the spaces that I travel through inside the earth are like crawling underneath the chairs in your kitchen, <laughs> underneath the kitchen table. And I'm following a little thin guideline of string and relying on this complex life support to deliver my very next breath. And for a lot of people, just thinking about that environment and then thinking about the fact that it's in complete and total darkness, it terrifies them. 
Um, I don't have even a stitch of claustrophobia in me at all. Not Good. underwater. Yeah. Interestingly, I'm more comfortable in an underwater cave than I am in a dry cave. Yeah. Like if I'm pinched between rocks in a right. dry cave, I start to like hyperventilate a bit. But if I'm squeezing through a small space in an underwater cave, for some reason, it feels like it's my element. Amazing. I wonder why that is. I don't know. I mean, I was three weeks late being bored, and so maybe I just didn't want to leave that cave of the womb. Right? Very happy floating in yeah, yeah. fluid. That's, yeah. That's amazing. And some of these videos I'm watching, you're in cityscapes in places too. Mm-hmm. You're like going under and seeing where this groundwater is yeah. and where it's coming from. And a lot of what you do with education and that is mm-hmm. talking about what we're doing with our groundwater. I've seen you pop up through sewer grates yeah. in, in, in like strip malls. And yeah, yeah. I, I did a documentary series for PBS called Water's Journey, and we followed a drop of water through the landscape wherever it would lead us. And so sometimes that was through underwater caves, sometimes through stormwater conduits underneath cities. But I have cave dive beneath golf courses, a bowling alley, homes. Um, my favorite is underneath the salad bar of a Sunny's barbecue restaurant while a surface tracking team was like walking in between the tables in a restaurant yelling cave survey coming through and planting a orange flag in a salad bar potato salad. I'm, you know, 240 feet beneath them in a cave swimming. Wow. Yeah. And giving a bunch of Sunny's customers something to talk about it. And they still do. Like 15 years later, when you go to that restaurant, they'll be like, so there's a cave under here. That's fantastic, which no one would have known about, right? No one would have known about it. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you, I mean, obviously there's water is life and everything else. Mm -hmm. And what are you learning when you're down there? Well, you know, for me, it's water literacy. And most of us turn on the tap and we don't really think about where the water comes from. And yet, you know, clean, fresh drinking water is a very finite resource. And it's probably one of the most, well, it is the most important resource on planet Earth. And something that we have to work towards making as a very basic global human right. Because if we don't have clean, fresh drinking water, then we're going to live in a world full of conflict. Because wouldn't you do absolutely anything to save your child if they're dying of thirst? Well, so would everybody else on this Earth. Uh, So as I swim through these environments and learn the paths that they lead and in the fingers underneath our planet, I hope that I can communicate to people that everything they do on the surface of the earth is going to eventually be returned to them to drink and that our water resources are global. There are no international boundaries between the flow of water. And so pollution anywhere on earth can affect all of us. What are simple steps you tell people to do? Um, Well, it's funny, I actually did a documentary project called We Are Water, and I have a section on my website, intotheplanet.com, where people can learn about those small changes in their lives that they can make to uh, be better stewards of the water environment. And that includes everything from learning about your local watershed and taking a kid to enjoy their local watershed to, you know, taking shorter showers or even thinking about your water footprint so Water goes into making your blue jeans and your hamburgers and everything else in your life. And when you understand the amount of water that it takes to produce these resources, you start thinking about using a little bit less in your life. Um, So you have worked with a a number of 
very interesting people. James Cameron, the filmmaker, mm -hmm. is one of those. Yeah. You guys worked on a film together. Another great Canadian. Another great Canadian, <laughs> yeah. From, from your neck of the woods, too. Yeah. I think, yeah. yeah. He, um, he had a quote about you that said, more people have been to the moon than the places Jill has explored mm -hmm. under our seas. And can you take me to a couple of those places? Oh, wow. Uh, inside an iceberg, an iceberg that was a piece of the largest iceberg that's ever calved away from Antarctica. Uh, that's probably one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen. And, uh, you know, that was an early look at global climate change. It was 2000 when this piece of ice broke away from the Ross Ice Shelf. It was the size of Jamaica, the largest moving object on our planet. And uh, I led a diving team from the National Geographic to go intercept this iceberg and go cave dive inside it. So that was amazing. Um, I've been inside lava tubes submerged beneath the floor of the ocean in the Monte Corona volcano in Lanzarote. I've been in water-filled spaces beneath the Sahara Desert on the Libyan border. Um, so that's unexpected. Crazy stuff. Well, didn't you ever wonder as a kid where the water in these ponds, these oases in the desert came from? Yeah. Oh, I did. So I went there. <laughs> so you went to an oasis? What you, is that well, how yeah, okay. literally, uh, I thought, where does water come from in these oasis springs in places where it only rains every 25 years in the Sahara Desert? And I did some research on Alexander the Great because Alexander the Great uh, actually has a bit of diving background to him. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. So um, almost 400 BC, he... Um, actually carved a bathysphere, so a, a sphere out of quartz, so that he could go beneath the surface of the Mediterranean and see what was under the sea. Ah, fascinating. Yeah, so he had this interest in the underwater, and then he was called by an oracle to travel across from Cairo to this place very close to the Libyan border called Siwa. The oracle called him to Siwa to consult at the temple of Jupiter Amun, to um, give him some instructions. So he travels across the desert with his army, loses half the men, gets to Siwa, goes to the temple, and the oracle is inside a drinking water well. So he yells down into the drinking well to learn that he is going to be the next true pharaoh of Egypt. Wow. Now, as he's yelling down the drinking water well, he th thinks to himself, isn't that interesting? I think these drinking water wells are connected from oases to oases and community to community. And he mentions this in his writings. And I think, cave dive. <laughs> so I went there to go see these oases springs wow. and um, learn about what turns out to be the Nubian aquifer, the oldest fossil, the largest fossil aquifer on the planet. When you're down there, what are you seeing? Because people just think pitch mm -hmm. black, but obviously you have lights and you... Yeah. yeah, we have to take lights. There's yeah. no no illumination from the surface whatsoever. And caves around the world are all, yeah. all different. Um, in parts of the world where caves were formed above sea level, when the ocean levels were lower, the caves are filled with stalactites and stalagmites, so crystalline draperies of beautiful rock hanging from the ceiling and standing up like spires of piles of candle wax piled up from the floor. So beautiful galleries that when you illuminate them with your light, they, they glow orange and yellow and white. And in other places, the tunnels are barren of those kinds of decorations because the caves were formed beneath the surface. 
carved by water, in those places, the water sculpts the wall as if it's carved out little scallop chunks from the limestone over, over time. And those caves feel very old. And then volcanic lava tubes where the volcano spews lava down a mountainside and then that lava meets the water and the outside of the flow is immediately cooled by the water but the interior of lava continues to flow like water through a fire hose for a period of time before it's cooled enough to solidify. So those caves are formed in a matter of an instant or days or weeks. So some caves feel old and they tell a history of like a time capsule, and some are very young. Must be incredible to be in these places too, where there really is no other people. I mean, there must, mm-hmm. that sense that you're going there for the first time must be... Yeah, I mean, I've been in places where I've been the first to explore an underwater cave, and I lay that first guideline, and I survey, um, make a map of the space that I'm swimming through, and then suddenly there on the floor is a skeleton. <laughs> no. So, yeah, I've been 6,000 feet from an entrance to the surface and have swam in an underwater cave and found a skeleton laying on the floor of the cave, partially encased in calcite. So that skeleton, that person, would have walked into that cave at a time of lower water levels. Right and then perhaps been lost, or I don't know if they were making an intentional journey, but died in that space. And then the water dripping from the ceiling with a little bit of calcium carbonate in the water slowly encased them into the rock. Yeah. Yeah. And where where was that? Uh, Mexico. In Mexico. Yeah. So that person would have been how long ago, do we think? Well, I mean, many of these caves would have been dry even 13,000 years ago, but... In caves in the Bahamas, for instance, we have dated some of the geology there to be as old as 350,000 years. So there's been multiple dry epochs where we find materials in the cave that have come all the way from the Sahara Desert and deposited themselves in a cave in the Bahama Islands. So, you know, we don't always know how old things are right off the bat. It takes a long time before the scientists can determine the age. You mentioned Jacques Cousteau, and I used mm-hmm. to watch Jacques Cousteau too. Mm-hmm. Love those. Because of this, I was just wound up rewatching a bunch, and they're all on YouTube now, of course. Mm-hmm. Everything's on YouTube. And they're still great. I mean, yeah. They really are. And I was impressed with how much of an environmental advocate he was even mm-hmm. back then. I thought it was amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, he started, his early stuff was full of wonder and beauty and experience. And oh, look at this. And I think even he in his time saw such remarkable change occurring so rapidly that his later work became very much conservation-oriented, but also less positive. Mm. So his later work was a little bit depressing and a bit harder to watch because I don't know that he always saw solutions. I don't know that he could maintain his positivity when he was seeing pollution or seeing overfishing or some of the other things that he documented. And one thing he taught me is that no matter how bad the situation is that you're documenting, you, you do need to give people some level of hope or mm. some sense that they have control over the future outcomes, even if it's small things. Otherwise, uh, I think we become a little bit closed-minded. You just shut down. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, how many yeah. coves of bleeding dolphins can you watch before it just yeah. pains you and you can't even turn on the visuals anymore? But if there's hope, then we can make change. Yeah. 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 
also with Cousteau, Rod Serling was doing the voiceovers in some of these things yeah. from the Twilight Zone. And I'm yeah. like, talk about ominous. Yeah. Um, but uh, the other thing I noticed too is that the Calypso or his ship was, you know, it was all men on there. Like those, yes. back then. So, and, and you're a woman, and I think it's still a fairly male dominated field. Isn't oh, it? yeah. I mean, there's still more men in diving than women, but I'm also a niche within a niche within a niche in terms of cave diving, technical diving, underwater filmmaking, exploring. Um, there's fewer and fewer women in, in each of those right. <laughs> niches. Yeah. yeah. So how do you manage yeah. that? I mean, how do you, how have you, I mean, you've su- clearly mm-hmm. succeeded in what you're doing and how, how yeah. what was the steps for that? I mean, it hasn't always been easy. I mean, there've been both unintentional sexism and very overt um, misogyny that I've experienced through my lifetime and my career. There's a lot of opportunity I was not able to partake in because of being a woman. But my philosophy was always work hard and just take for granted that I could succeed. So I guess, you know, try not to let anything stand in my way. Now, there are times when it's painful. (laughs) It's difficult. Um, But I believe that I could do anything that any of my male colleagues could do. And in some cases, when I'm working with other women in some of these very risky, dangerous environments, I actually really enjoy working with women who are very open about fear and willing to talk about it. And that is sometimes a benefit. Yeah, yeah. Can we talk about fear? Yeah, yeah. So there must be a good deal of fear involved in what you do. How do you manage fear? Well, you know, people say, God, you must be fearless, the things that you do. And I'm like, not at all. (laughs) I tell people I am scared all the time. And it's natural to be scared of things that can hurt you. And it's good to dive with people who are also scared because they also care about the outcome. And I think that I've learned to embrace fear and understand that it'll show me the way. I know that when something really, really horrible happens, when I'm in that moment, I go, whoa, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get home. And I'm very scared. The first thing that I have to do is quiet my mind and tell myself that my emotions won't serve me well right now and send them away. (laughs) And I've learned to be very disciplined and able to turn it off and be very cold and steely and pragmatic because one has to be able to take very small steps towards ultimate victory, success, survival, you know, uh, in order to solve big problems. And it might be one step forward and a small step back, but you've just got to be able to plod relentlessly towards success. And then afterwards you can cry. <laughs> right, right. But at the time, uh, the emotions only make you want to breathe fast and your heartbeat go faster. And then you use up your tank of gas faster and that's not going to work for me. <laughs> right. It yeah. C- creates absolute focus, I guess. Yeah. Because it has to. Yeah. But I think in any endeavor in life, there are things that scare everyone. Right. You know, whether it's, you know, jumping into cold water or whether it's putting an edgy proposal on your boss's desk, our heartbeat. <laughs> raises up a little faster, pitter-patters, and, and we're scared. But the emotion of fear is also very closely linked to excitement. Yeah, yeah. So you jump on a roller coaster, you're scared, but you're also excited. Right. So maybe you can turn that fear into excitement for yeah. a moment yeah. and, and embrace it and realize that that's what turns you into an explorer. Because we're all explorers. We were explorers when we were kids, putting everything in our mouth. Mm. You know? mm. Somehow 
the constraints of society beat that out of us at some point. And I think if we can all be a little more childlike, embrace that exploration, then right. it will serve us well. So you're telling yourself, I'm not scared, I'm, I'm excited. Yeah. And it works. Yeah, it works. <laughs> it's worked so far. <laughs> touch yeah. wood. Touch, touch wood. <laughs> There's a series of questions I've been asking everyone. One is about gear. Uh, yeah. Is there a piece of gear, or it could be a good luck charm, it could be, I don't know what, a favorite pair of something that you always bring with you? Wow, that's interesting. Because of the way and the places that I go to, I'm cutting a toothbrush in half just to reduce a couple of ounces. <laughs> so, so I don't end up having any payload you right. know, available to take anything else that's right. special. So my favorite things are like, you know, a warm buff for my neck or a bandana for my head. They're functional things or a double-walled stainless thermos, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's not all that sentimental, no. I guess. No, or a half toothbrush. Yeah. yeah, half a toothbrush, yeah. Because that enabled me to bring a warm buff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's fantastic. And you've spent a lot of time in Canada. I've just heard this talk you gave and you said some of your favorite dives are in Canada. Like, what, what are the mm. ones that really stand out for you? Well, the underwater environment is incredible in Canada. It's beautiful. I don't see as much change in this environment as I see in tropical areas in within terms, my lifetime. In terms of coral reefs yeah, and that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, but I have a really strong connection to Vancouver Island and all the beautiful wildlife out there, the giant Pacific octopus, the wolf eels, the stellar sea lions. And uh, you can still see these in such a natural situation. Surprisingly yeah. colorful down Very there. Very colorful, yeah. And Newfoundland equally is also colorful and has some incredible history with the shipwrecks, World War II shipwrecks and the remains of whaling vessels. There's a, a lot going on underwater in Newfoundland too. Right. You yeah. were just in Belle Island. Yeah. yeah doing some dives mm -hmm. there, which mm -hmm. I've learned from you was actually attacked by the Germans. Yeah. I didn't know that story until I went to Belle Island. Um, Robert, my husband, and I rode our bicycles across Canada from Vancouver to St. John's, Newfoundland. And in St. John's, as happens to anyone that visits Newfoundland, I made a new family. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, a man named Rick Stanley, who's the ultimate ambassador for Newfoundland, took me around and started telling me stories of Canadian history that I wasn't aware of, including the fact that German U-boats in 1942 had sunk four ore-carrying vessels at Belle Island, very close to St. John's. And uh, I'm like, what? And, and those were only a number of the vessels that had been sunk. Right, in that area. And yeah, because in 1942, when something like that happened, like in fact, a torpedo struck land during World War II, so that's the only torpedo that struck what is now Canada. <laughs> but it took out the loading wharf for the iron ore coming from the mine in Belle Island. Mm -hmm. And um, I was like, why? why? How come I had never heard of this story? Yeah, exactly. But back in the day when um, those kinds of terrifying things happened, there was basically a hush over the news. Uh, they didn't want to terrify people and make people think that the war was now on our doorstep, right. which it was. Right, yeah. right. And you went down that iron ore mine as well. Yeah. So the Bell Island mine that produced this very rich iron ore that was important for the shipbuilding efforts in 1942 is now flooded. So for the last 50 plus years, it's been filled with water. 
the pumps were turned off when it was no longer economically viable to mine that ore and the mine filled up with water and now in order to explore its depths we have to go scuba diving inside the mine to see what's there. What did you find? It's incredible. The pumps were turned off with uh, no warning to some people. So they'd gone home for the Christmas holidays, the only time of year when they actually got a few days break because normally it was a half day off per week. And when they came back after the Christmas holiday, the owners of the mine had turned the pumps off because it was no longer economically feasible to mine. And so people had left behind personal belongings as well as all the mining infrastructure. So pumps and pipes and pneumatic tools and shovels. And um, there's a horse stable underwater. Uh, There's tool rooms underwater. Full of tools, full of everything. There are places on the walls where men made inscriptions and caricatures with the lamp black from their cap lamps. You can see those still. And we can see those caricatures. We can see you know, places where people just carve their name on the wall. And we can see these tiny white crosses that were painted in every location where 106 men lost their lives one at a time in the course of working in that mine. That's incredible. Um, Which brings me to my last question, which I ask everyone is um, a favorite place in Canada. Is there a place that you go to when you need a happy place? Oh, (laughs) wow. Gosh, I, I would just say Ontario and Ontario's north. When... My husband, Robert, and I rode our bikes across Canada. He's originally from the States. Mm -hmm. He's a wannabe Canadian right now, just waiting those final days for his his permanent resident status to come through. And when we rode our bikes across Canada, I said to him, really pay attention. You know, where do you want to live in Canada? What resonates with you? And we had been living part-time in Canada through the last 12 years of our marriage, but part-time in the States. And so it was time in my life to come back and settle full-time in Canada. And I was really hoping he was going to say Ontario resonated with him, but it it, it did for him right. too. Yeah. Uh, there's just something, and maybe it's very deep within my genes because my mm. my family history goes back a long time in, in this area. Sure. Is there and, a spot in particular, though, if you had to drill it right down? Well, to- for me, it's when I'm out on the water in the lakes where the granite rises from the water with a twisted pine on the shore and right. the colors of the pink and the gray on a hot summer day when I can lay on that granite and listen to a loon um, and feel the warmth from the rock, then I, I feel like I'm I in the place. The, I can smell the pine. Yeah. I feel like that's the place of my ancestors and it resonates. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Well, great. Well, Jill, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, it's my pleasure. You know, it was a real pleasure talking to you. <laughs> thank you. Um, is there anything else we missed here that you want to... Oh, just um, if you want to learn more about what I do, have a look at intotheplanet.com. And this August, August 27th, my uh, memoir will be released from Penguin Random House, uh, Double Day Books in Canada. What's that called? Into the Planet. Nice. Into the Planet. Very appropriate title. Yeah, Yeah. my explorations framed around the topic of fear. (laughs) There we go. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. That was Jill Heiner, Royal Canadian Geographical Society explorer in residence and the world's leading underwater cave diver. She was speaking to us here at the RCGS headquarters at 50 Sussex Drive in Ottawa. Join us next week for a fascinating conversation with Canada's first ever female astronaut, Roberta Bonder. Music and production for Explore are done by Robin Dumas of SoundShield Studios. Want even more great Canadian Geographic content? 
visit cangeo.ca forward slash subscribe to order Canadian Geographic magazine. Your subscription gets you six issues a year featuring stories about Canada's land, wildlife and people that will surprise, delight and entertain. And here's an example. The current issue of the magazine features an article about the canoe journey I took with my son and cousin through the Peel watershed in the Western Canadian Arctic. We were following the route of my great-grandfather and RCGS founder Charles Campbell, who led the first mapping expedition of the region back in 1905. Beyond great stories like that, subscribers get bonus issues of Canadian Geographic Travel Magazine and a free wall map of this great country of ours. Go to cangeo.ca and subscribe today.